Welcome to Full and Frank, a series of podcasts from Macris Exchange, spanning the worlds of finance, politics, sport, and the media. Hello and welcome to this Full and Frank podcast on behalf of Acris Exchange. I'm Michael Wilson and I'm joined by my good friend David Buick. Good day, sir. Good morning to you, sir. Now, another football season, you won't need reminding about this, is almost on us. We hear all about the big names, the millions spent on marketing, never mind the players, and in some cases, never mind the results. But what of the real business of the game? We're very pleased to welcome our special guest um, to this podcast, Martin Simmons, who's CEO of Southampton Football Club. Um, David, you're going to kick off, aren't you? Yes, I am. Good morning to you, Martin, and bless you for doing this for us. Um, as I recall, prior to becoming CEO of Southampton, you have no previous experience in Premiership football. Clearly, you were a very successful entrepreneur in the world of media and advertising. Has that experience helped you in running and moulding a successful Premier, Premiership operation? It feels very much to me like God's own opportunity to run your own business. Yeah, good morning, David. Good morning, Michael. Thank you for, for having me on. Yeah, I think it does make sense. I I was thinking about this this morning that when I first came into football seven or eight years ago, um, people used to use the same expression with me, which is, oh, you're not from football or are you from a football or are you a football man? And it struck me on on day one that I'm, I'm not sure that's really, you know, how to run a business. It's just to have people that have been there all their lives doing the same thing. I've, I've come from a more innovative background where you look outside of your own environment and try and improve by bringing in other skills. And I think the one thing that really struck me early on was that being an entrepreneur and running a Premier League football team seemed to have you know, real similarities. So, for example, the thing that really struck me was that everyone had a common purpose. So when you start a business from scratch, everybody's going in the same direction. Everyone loves every second of it. Everyone's building towards something. And in a football club, you have the same thing. So you have a multitude of people and different ages and different backgrounds and different skills. But everyone's leading towards one thing, which is winning a game on a Saturday, and that's what they want. And I think the second thing that really fits is everybody's contribution matters. So whether you're cutting the grass or whether you're scoring the goals, there's still very significant roles, right? They sound That sounds silly, but if you don't cut the grass properly and the players can't play properly, then it's really quite a big um, impact. And you have people in the administrative department that when we sign a player, have to fill out the forms properly. And if they don't do it, that player can't play. You remember there's a famous player at, at Leicester that they filled the format wrong and he didn't play for six months. So everybody has a significant role to play. And the last bit is, I guess, the, the do or die bit, right? So the, the entrepreneurship of where you can get it right or wrong, Premier League football is the same. If you get things wrong, you really can be on the edge of oblivion within a few weeks. So that sort of area of high pressure and we're all in this together and we're all going to win together, I think, is um, a really exciting part of it. The, the club has done extremely well. Um, um, it's been, what, what, 10 years of, of consecutive membership of the, of the Premier League. That, that's, that's no small achievement. But it does get harder, doesn't it? Because, we, 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 I mean, just look at what we've got coming back into the league. Villa, Leeds, now Forest. Um, a new investment in the league coming from clubs like Newcastle and so on. How do you keep ahead of that competition you've just described on, on, a, on a much smaller budget? Yeah, it's difficult. I, I think I see my role as, as bringing everyone together onto one path. And it's really a, a people management business where you've just got so many different skills you're trying to bring together on, on one path. And then I, I always give the analogy of, remember that game whack-a-mole at the, um, the fairground where you know, the, the bunny, you've got to bang it on the head. You know, running a team is a bit <laughs> like that. There's, all, there's always something going wrong and you have to manage those every day. And there'll be one today. 
but the key is to make sure you're going on one path, right? So we are in what I consider to be the number one, you know, elite sport in the world league, you know, not just football, but anyone. It's very, very difficult. It's very competitive. You have the relegation places, the European places, everyone's investing and spending. And for us, we can't do that, right? We just don't have the budget to compete against almost anyone now as Villa have come in the league and Leeds have come in the league and Newcastle have arrived in the last year. We don't have the budget to compete. So therefore we have to outperform, you know, by being innovative and, and changing stuff every day to be better. So, you know, how, how is it possible? And, and Ralph, our manager says to me, how is it possible that we go off and we beat City and we beat Man United and we beat Tottenham and we beat, how is it possible to do that? The only way to do that is to do our jobs better and to have that perfect combination of every individual in the club being, on, on form and doing a great thing that day and it all comes together on that one. So, so our secret is just making sure that every tiny detail we do better than the guys that have got more money than us and it isn't much more complicated than that. Um, you've always had great support from Katerina Lieber. I mean, she's the daughter of the previous owner but one, Marcus Lieber. She, as I understand, retains a 20% stake in Southampton despite the fact that most of the shares in the club have changed hands twice in recent years. Gao Jixing, the Chinese operation, bought 80% of the club from the Lieber family back in 2017. Unfortunately, as I understand it, they had insufficient money to provide for buying players as well as for enhancing the well-being of the club. However, in the last three months, new owners are now bedded down. Tell us about Dragon Solak and, and, and the Sports Republic, Martin. Yeah, I think the first thing to say there is, you know, like a like everything in football, you know, in the media, it looks like a new, owner, a new owner turns up with a bag of cash and off you go. And in reality, it's a business. And it took us about two and a half years to find the right people. You know, I, I was given the mandate to go out and find the right people by Mr. Gow to take the club forward. And we actually met 28 groups uh, before we hit the one that where the mm -hmm. kind of the dating process works. <laughs> it's a lot, isn't it? And I, I often, again, joke that it's like being on a dating app. You know, it isn't about one person having the money. It's, it's both sides of you have got to swipe right or left or whatever it is to make sure that, you know, that relationship works. And I think we went looking out there in the market for three things. We went looking for somebody that truly knows and has experience of running a business because that's important because it is a, is a big global business, not just a football team. And then secondly, people have experience in elite sport because I think it's very hard to come you know, from a different business into an elite sport environment and not, you know, make mistakes in the short term. We wanted to avoid that. And lastly, then having the skill in investment, the money, the desire to shift us forward because the club had been doing well for a long time, um, but needed to do better, needed more investment. So we wanted someone that really had the ambition to, to kick us forward. And I think on the other side, they were looking for a, a club that was well run, that had a sort of DNA and player pathway and, and youth development. And they wanted to come in somewhere and build this group um, around us based on on who we are and things we've done well. So I think the marriage the marriage worked well and that's how it happened. You, you've talked at length about the the, the, the DNA of, of the club, you know, right from the people cutting the grass to the people actually performing performing on the field. Um, and you, you've obviously created a, a wonderful family atmosphere. And as I was saying, you know, you remained in the top tier, but despite huge external pressures, do the new owners share the same philosophy as you? Yeah, I think they do. I think they, they came looking for a club, as I said, that, that had an idea of where they wanted to go, but it also married very closely what, what they want to do. So in the end of the day, you know, their theory is around building a player pathway that makes you 
be better at producing players for the Premier League. And, and that's why they chose us. So I think they do have the same philosophy. We have these two guys, uh, Henrik Kraft and Rasmus Ankerson, who come from a business and a sporting background, respectively. And, and bringing that business vigour and rigour over our Premier League team is really important. But Rasmus also brings that innovation and that modern take on how to run a professional elite environment. So I think they do, you know, want to go the same direction we are going in, but they want to bring more investment, more modern techniques, more data, more innovation to make us more competitive in the future. And I think that's why we we went for it. You've always touched, I think, quite rightly, so great credence and importance to having a really good strategy. I mean, how long does it actually take to derive a strategy? And who takes part in evolving it? I mean, are you over-democratic? Do you have to be? Or is it down to you and then the fine-tuning is done by other people? Yeah, that's interesting. I think, again, an insight we always give is that in, in elite sport, and particularly in Premier League football, there's only really one rule, which is you must have a plan, right? And it doesn't always matter so much how, what that plan is, and each team has a different one. But I think the big areas that you see in Premier League teams is where they move around and change the whole time. So it's very hard to be competitive in this league, but it's also very hard to stand out for anything because somebody else is always better at the thing you're trying to do. So, so I think we have a clear vision of what the Southampton way is. It's about player development. It's about taking the potential um, that we have and turning it into excellence across the club, not just in the, the young players, but in every player and every part of the club. And I think if, you, if you've got a clear path like that that we've got, then it's just about evolving it the whole time. So the way we did it, funnily enough, is when I came to the club, we brought all 400 employees together in one room for 24 hours and we sort of redefined it together. And now we meet three or four times a year and we go through it. And, and the key for me is making sure, as I said before, that the guy who's out there cutting the grass in the morning and preparing that pitch for the players to train on today understands his role. And if he gets that wrong and the player's not right and James Ward-Prowse falls over and hurts himself, he's had a massive impact on, on the team, much more than I could ever have. So it's about making sure everybody understands their role in it and not sitting back as you might if you were working in a Cadbury's factory saying, well, all I'm doing is putting the chocolate in the machine, but really, truly understanding that every role we have there builds up to us winning on Saturday. And if you, if you can achieve that, then I think, you know, you have, a, you have a good culture and a good environment where everyone's moving forward. And the way we police it is really to look at every role and thinking if you don't feel you're contributing, you're in the wrong job or you don't need that job or you should be in a different one. And if, if everyone feels they're taking part in it, then I think you're going in the right direction. I think. How, how do, do, the, do the new majority owners, Sports Republic, actually continue with this collaborative um, philosophy? That, that, that you clearly have. I'm, I'm talking. I'm sorry about the words, but it's kind of cross fertilization, for example, clubs from other other countries. Um, are, are other clubs doing the same kind of thing? I'm thinking about Red Bull and their relationship with Manchester City. Um, is it a successful idea? Can you explain a bit about it? Yeah, sure. And I think I think there are two questions there. What one is around how do you keep that collaborative, yeah. you know, clear vision um, when you have new owners? And I think that's difficult. And and the way I see that is is not to try and fight for our own ground and end up in a us and them situation, but understand, like I said before, that there can only be one plan. Well, it has to be a Sport Republic and a Southampton Football Club plan together. And if we don't do that, we're in big trouble. And it's better to compromise a little bit to make sure we have one plan rather than having two competing forces. And it's better to compromise. There might be someone in the club who doesn't want to go in that direction, and that's okay. It's okay. But the clarity is to make sure you have one plan that goes forward. 
And I think the second part of the question is around the pathway, right? So what's important is to understand why we're doing it. So we're doing it because at the end of the day, we can't compete in the league by spending money. We have to kind of earn success, you know, not buy it, as we say. And the way to do that for us is to produce a player. I don't know, Michael, which is your team, but if I said to you every year, you're going to produce one elite Premier League player from your academy, your club would go through the roof, right? Just one every year. And that's what we target to do. Um, and the plan here is to try and build a network of clubs, maybe five or six clubs around Europe and the world where we can put our DNA, put our player pathway, science and coaching and, and innovation on top of those clubs and help them produce players that will one day eventually end up in the Premier League. And if we can then produce a team that has 25, 35, 40% of our players on a match day coming from that process, then our ability to compete will go through the roof. So, so that's that's the plan. And then when you ask about other clubs, I think there's a lot of learnings there. So, so Red Bull, I think, is a really clear example of someone that took a style of play, a way of working, all the clubs that you know, operate in the same way, and that was very successful. Um, they've definitely had issues recently as they've become really successful, and that's something to watch out for, where they're no longer collaborating in the way they were. And Man City, for example, is probably the other end of the scale where they're really about global domination and winning every week. And, and that's not what we're about. You know, we're about developing young players and building and, and allowing those environments to grow slowly, um, not about trying to win the league in every country, you know, within sort of two years, which I think is probably more, more their model. I mean, you've always attached, well, that's Southampton, enormous importance to the academy, which has been hugely successful over the years. I mean, you just have to look at the, Dramatist personnel that have come out of there: Theo Walcott, Luke Shaw, Adam Lalana, Callum Chambers, Danny Ings, Alex Oxlade Chamberlain, and of course, currently James Ward Prowse. Many, of course, have moved on to achieve, achieve success elsewhere, and also made some very shrewd purchases like Virgil Van Dijk and Sadio Mane and Dusan Tajik. I mean, they were all very shrewdly uh, purchased and inexpensively. And in conversations you and I have had in the past. You are, I think, quite against keeping players against their better judgment. Yeah. Um, so the academy is important to us, I think, for, for a primary reason, which is we, we feel like any business that we want to stand out and be different. I think our biggest fear is that we fall into a pack of clubs, which I won't embarrass and mention, but you know, differentiate between them. How, how can you do that? They're all yeah. the same, right? They're all doing the same thing. So, so that is our point of difference. That's the one place that we can compete on a global scale when there is a, a top player like Harvey Elliott, for example, who came from your club, I know, who's looking to move on to bigger things. The list is Liverpool, Man United, Real Madrid, Barcelona, and quite often Southampton ends up on that list, right? So that's our point of difference. That's what we're famous for. So that's why it's so important. <coughs> Excuse me. And it produces the players that we want. But I, but I think the second part of the question is, 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 is probably more interesting in terms of how do we, you know, make sure that works and the common misperception is that we are a selling club or we need the money it's got nothing to do with that at the end of the day if you're going into the market to harvey elliott or tino livramento or whoever it might be and saying you know you come to us you have to do three things you have to you have to have the ability to say we are world class at developing young players and have the facility and the science and the environment and the people to look after your family and produce the right food for you and wash your clothes we have to then have a manager and a setup that will actually play you. And that's the key is looking across the table and going to Livermento or Harvey Elliott, you're going to play in the first team. And then the third one that you reference is we have to be okay about selling you. So we absolutely categorically say, we want you to come, we'll look after you, we'll make you better. 
But if Liverpool want you, we'll let you go at the right price at the right time because then they believe and then they will come. If you hold them back and you don't sell them, uh, then in the end, they don't want to come. And, and there are other clubs that we probably shouldn't mention that are in that mess, right? Some in North London that they were, if, you, if you can't get out of there, then people don't want to get in there. Just, very interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting indeed. It's a very interesting point. And just taking it slightly further forward, um, the relationship between the boardroom and the, the coaching on the pitch, What? who is the boss? I mean, what, what responsibilities does your head coach or manager, if I can put it like that, actually have that, that you don't? And, and do you bow down to his wishes? How does the relationship work? <laughs> I've asked that question all the time and never quite in that way who, who's the boss so let's answer that and then we'll talk about the relationship but I think at the end of the day the club is the boss right so we don't see me as the as the boss we see the club um you know and the custodianship is important and Ralph doesn't see it that way either right so the manager is the key employee he's the number one person that can lead to success or failure but for me it's about creating the environment for him being successful and I think he gets that more than most managers in the league and we sometimes talk about this sort of F1 analogy which is as I've started to watch that drive to survive documentary and understand it a bit more you know in the end of the day the guy's driving the car he's going to crash it or he's going to win the race but you have to create the right car and the right environment around him and form a Premier League team is like that if you don't create the right environment and you don't put the right culture in place and you don't provide the right players and feed them the right food and make sure they're ready at three o'clock on a Saturday, the manager can be as good as you like. He's not going to get anywhere. So, so I think that that that's important, and that that relationship between the club, the people that lead the club, the manager, the players, goes all the way down to, you know, the doctor who has to get the player ready to play and say whether he's available on Saturday. So I think it's a very broad um, relationship that leads to who's in charge. I think the one thing that that Ralph understands is that at the end of the day, unless he has that around him, he cannot be successful. And I think you'll find in the league, there are some managers that believe they can do it on their own. And I think Ralph has come in and said, actually, I don't see that. I don't see Southampton being successful because I'm a great manager or Mourinho could do a better job or Frank Lampard could do a worse job. I think he sees that it's a collaborative process. And if we give him the tools, then he's got a good chance of being successful. And therefore, that's why it is such a collaborative and clear relationship where we all win or, or lose together I think <clears throat> just to draw another analogy I mean Martin do you see yourself as the conductor of the orchestra and Ralph Hasenhutl as the leader of the orchestra if you see what I mean first fiddle um, that's what I the way I would look at it but am I on the right sort of track or not yeah I think so I think in many different ways we're looking at it but I think I think if you go back to what we said at the beginning of this this chat it's all about having a plan so at this time of the year Ralph and I and the people around us are trying to build a plan that will make us successful next year. And it doesn't really matter where those ideas come from. It matters that we're all signed up to them. So whether you're talking about the way the first team will play, whether you're talking about, you know, where we go on pre-season or, or recruitment, at the end of the day, there is a leader of the group, which is, which is quite often me or Ralph in certain other environments. But the way we work is we look around the room and we go, there are seven people in charge of recruitment or seven people in charge of how the team will set up next year. Are we all bought into this? And when we buy into it, we then go off and execute. And there really are endless silos of, of detailed work, whether it be medical science, whether it be you know recruitment, all these different things that have to build to the same plan. And if you're not clear on what you're trying to do and you know, give the basic football example, if we are building a team for long ball football and you need six foot seven strikers up front but you haven't told recruitment that and they buy 
uh, you know, a small striker, you're in big trouble. And I know that sounds simplistic, but it does happen in football. And, and what you've got to do is be 100% clear where you're going and what kind of athletes you need and what kind of setup you need. And therefore it is, you know, it's probably more collaborative than you think. From the outside, it looks like, you know, the, the, the transfer windows are pretty panicking activity, pretty rough activity behind the scenes and so on. Are you able to look through this? I mean, do you take a lot of notice of it? I know that it's, it's, it's a marketplace, but at the same time, you've talked about the long term, haven't you? Very, very successfully. How do, how do you actually view the whole, the whole business about transfers? Yeah, I think it's difficult. I think, I think those of us sort of deeply inside football would prefer this window to be a bit smaller because I think it is a distraction and that's the bit you see from the outside. But the planning process is really 12 months a year. I mean, that, that's probably an exaggeration. There is a period at the beginning of the season where you, you probably ignore it for a little bit of period of time, but it's probably nine months a year where you're constantly building a plan for the future. So we don't look at you know, building a team for this year. We look at building a team over a sort of two, three, four-year cycle so therefore we are constantly looking and, you know, we have 50 odd scouts within the club who are all year out watching games, building plans, building, you know, data and insight into the right players for us in the future. Um, so therefore it is a sort of annual process, but in the end, recruitment is the key. Uh, again, I often make the analogy of the um, of Tony Blair that said, uh, education, 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 wasn't it? So for us, recruitment's everything, right? If you don't get recruitment right, um, then in the end of the day, the team is not going to be any good. You've got to get the other stuff around it, right? So, so we probably see it more as a March, April, May, potentially June process, whereas what you see on TV is July and August. Um, but, you know, in reality, it is exactly as it looks, which is you've got to find the right people that fit your budget and plan and go at it. But we are probably three months ahead of what you see on TV, I would say. Just moving the conversation on a bit, I mean, you're obviously an attendee on a regular basis to the Football League, the EFL and the, and the Premier League um, as CEO. And what I think would interest um, us all is the differentials in terms of the various um, representatives from all the clubs. I mean, they've obviously got different access to grind. Um, is there much common ground um, at these meetings? I mean, it's a slightly controversial question, but I think it's, I think it's important. And do you actually find them in the long term over a year constructive? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think over the time I've been involved, very constructive, very collaborative. I think, as you know, the Premier League, you know, really has two, two clear roles, right? So there's 20 equal shares. So as a, a team in the Premier League, you have one equal share. You are a, a 20th owner of the Premier League and your vote is very important. So, so we see our role as being the custodian and, and running Southampton Football Club, but we also see it as 120th of the Premier League. And the Premier League is a massively important business to the economy, to, um, you know, the world of football. So, so I think over the years, it's been incredibly collaborative and clear. I think the world of COVID and the Super League and all the things that have come at us in the last two or three years have made that more difficult. So I think if we're honest, the, probably the, you know, collaborative, everybody's going on the same direction, it's probably not as strong as it was. And that's a big challenge to try and get it back to, to where it was. But, you know, your, your question around those meetings and the, the personalities, I think, you know, to show some insight on that, you know, again, you've got 20 different people leading those clubs with very diverse and different backgrounds and different agendas. And you have, you know, the likes of Denise who run Everton, who is just, just absolutely black and white Everton, 
you know, community fan base, doing the right thing for a community. You've got people like Jeff at Bournemouth, who I spoke to yesterday, who, you know, he kind of bleeds cherry blood. You know, all he really cares about is just waving that flag for Bournemouth and that passion that comes for him. But you've also got, you know, Christian Perslow and Steve Parrish and Paul Barber and Vinay Arsenal, who are proper experienced and, and, and very passionate business people who are pushing hard on the Premier League. So you, you do end up with, with very, very different views, but you cannot expect Bruce Buck or Ed Woodward in the past to have exactly the same view as Jeff at Bournemouth. You can't because they're completely different, you know, motor cars, you know, you know, they're just completely different. But I think everybody has a collaborative view that our role in these difficult times is to make sure football is going in the right direction and the Premier League, you know, as the pinnacle of that. And if you don't come together and you don't make decisions together, then you're just going to stall. Do, do you think that the Super League will, talking about pinnacles, do you think that will rear its head again? I, I don't personally. I think I think that's over for me. I think it was incredibly misguided and stupid thing to do. Um, I remember the moment it happened. We we happened to be at Wembley in the FA Cup semi-final against Chelsea. And I remember sitting there at three or four in the afternoon in the Royal Box, whatever you called it, and, and Richard Masters and his crew walked in and just walked up to me and went, you know, it seems to be happening. And we're like, really? I mean, can they be that stupid? So without, without going too deep into it, the way the Premier League politics really worked before that day was that the bigger clubs, try not to use that top six element, but those bigger clubs had a huge amount of power and had a strong agenda that they needed more out of the, of the share and more power and more decision-making. Um, and they always had this threat they could hang over you of, well, if you don't do what we want, then we can go off and do the Super League. And then when they did it and it went wrong so quickly and the world of football, all the fans, everybody in the world, the government, even even our best friend Boris came out and said, you're not doing it. You've pretty much lost it, right? So, so you're, you're in a gunfight and they've shot their missile and they only had one. So I think the, the energy is now towards doing the right thing for football, not just for the Premier League and certainly not for those, those mega clubs. And therefore, I think, you know, all of us can see a chance of an English club or a British club going back into a league like that in the next 10, 12, 15 years. Would be incredibly difficult. I just don't see how, how that would be possible. And it certainly is the wrong thing. And we would kind of fight to the death to make sure it didn't happen. Did it tweak you a little bit and um, saying, well, look, we need to do more for grassroots football, which, you know, I thought probably was quite important at the time because... You also had to fight off, if I may say so, because I'm going to be blunt about this, some quite gobby comments from some of the pundits in the media, which I thought were basically pretty unhelpful, uh, particularly yeah. when you want to hold it together. I mean, is that fair of me or not? Yeah, I think so. I, I, you know, I don't think I don't think football, Premier League football, is any diff different from politics or, or the media. You know, people are commenting without really knowing the facts. But your your initial question of did it refocus everyone's mind? I think it did. You know, I think in reality it did. And everyone went, uh, you know, I always talk about Steve Parrish. Steve Parrish always says he votes for the 92 clubs because one day I'll be back there. And I think that's a really solid way of looking at it. And I think everybody sees that a bit more broadly now. It's not all about the Premier League. It's about the wider pyramid and keeping football running in the way that we want it to run. I, I would say I think everybody knew that already. And a lot of money goes down and we don't talk about that money that goes down. But a refocus and making sure we're doing the right thing for the future of football was probably the most positive outcome of that Super League uh, disaster, yes. I think the thing that's worried me most in recent weeks is this government decision that they want to play a role in regulating football. 
because of obviously the Abramovich tenure at Chelsea and Saudi Arabia's purchase of Newcastle. Um, personally, I can't think of anything worse. I mean, once uh, the government starts getting involved in sport, unless it's in an extremely constructive manner in terms of money, I think it's just appalling. I mean, I know that we saw comments from Hugh Robinson, you know, who described football as the worst governed sport in Britain. Uh, I mean, to be honest with you, I don't actually care what he thinks. What do you think? Yeah, I don't think that's right. So, you know, it isn't badly um, badly governed. I think, yes, yes, Newcastle and stuff like that is, is the stuff in the media, but I think it's more driven by, you know, areas like at Berry, where people have been allowed to take over a club and, and not done the right thing and those clubs go out of the community and that's the real risk right so i think that's what's driven people to want external governance i mean it gives me an opportunity to say what i've always wanted to say which is you know gary neville on twitter as i'm sure you follow will go on all day every day about how awful the government are and they can't manage anything and they can't control anything but then says oh yeah but they'll be brilliant at, at, at running football it doesn't make any sense right so the problem with with government is they they move with the wind they have to be popular they have to make the decisions that seem to fit the electorate and that's not the right plan right the right plan is to do the right thing for football and i think you know i would welcome and i think the premier league welcome governance you know independent governance but but the idea that the government would do that themselves does seem a little bit counterintuitive to me i think we see it as the fa should have a bigger role i think if we're really honest they've been neutered a little bit and they need to have a bigger role and a bigger say in football and the premier league has a little bit too much um, independent regulation, independent governors, people coming from other worlds and sitting on a board that are overlooking what we're doing, yes. Um, and probably more than anything, the fan groups, right? So the idea that the fans are not having an input into in the direction of football and where it's going is wrong. And we need to make sure that is more visible and more, uh, you know, real. But I, I don't think you need Boris or a government being the person that steps in and tells us how to run our business now. One other thing I'd like to just ask on, and I think Michael and I have talked about this um, just before we bring this podcast to a close, which I found fascinating, is are you concerned about debt of the various clubs in the Premier League? I mean, debt is seems to me eye-watering in a lot of areas. I mean, we've seen the Glazers at Manchester United handle it quite, care, quite cleverly with all their other mm. franchises. But it does strike me that as we entered some pretty tough times economically debt at some of these clubs is dangerously high or am I making a mountain out of a molehill? No I don't think you are I think it's a very topical question so so one of the questions on the table at the moment is how do you handle you know the owners and directors test how do you judge who should come into a club or not and I think my personal view um, is debt should be the top person on that list right so if you've got your own money and you want to spend it buying Derby and turning it into a super club, then go for it. You know, but if, if you're borrowing other money and you're putting the club in debt, then you need to be watched and managed much more carefully. I think, you know, for, for balance, you have to say that, that the real test is whether you can service that debt. So in the world of business, as you know, the idea that, that you use debt and you can service that debt to grow your business is totally normal. So lots of people sit there and go, well, I can afford to pay the interest on that, so why can't I do it? But I think there needs to be a closer look um, outside of those super clubs and make sure that people can understand the risk of that debt. Because if you were to be relegated and you can't pay that debt back, whether you're looking at a Burnley or or those kind of clubs, I think that's a huge risk. And, and I would try and take that out of football if you can, yes. Martin, all I can say is thank you very much. We've loved it, uh, Michael, and we? Terrific interview and thank you very much indeed. 
Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. 